Toward the end of today's episode, there's a couple of audio glitches. They're no longer than three seconds in length, and we did our best to clean them up. It's a fantastic episode, and we're glad to have you join us. We just wanted to let you know that it's not you, it's us. Enjoy today's show. We wanted to see if two girls could do something like that by themselves in the woods for that long without assist from men or guides or anyone else. And I think that was it. Like, we wanted to see if we could do it and come out on the other side, wiser, stronger, and being forced into a situation where you don't have the option to rely on anyone else and you have to do it yourself, you realize that you can't. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Today we're joined by Gina Malafite. Gina is an intriguing woman to me. She is uh, a mom. She's uh, an avid outdoors woman. She's a fellow adventurer and she's got a pretty cool backstory and has agreed to share some of hers with us today. So we're going to let her, her kind of break into some of her, uh, her childhood uh, memories. And then we're going to also let Gina jump in and tell us an adventure story. And hopefully we'll learn a life lesson or two in, in the middle of that. Gina, how you doing today? Hey, doing good, thanks. Appreciate you joining us. Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and get the Adventure Deficit community filled in on uh, a little bit about you, who you are, a little bit about your background, and uh, what you like to do. Where were you born? Perfect. Yeah, great. Um, so I grew up in a small blue-collar town in the southern part of Indiana called Evansville. We um, lived on the border of Kentucky, and I would say, for the most part, my little town would have considered themselves Southerners. They had their little Southern accents and acted like they were more from Kentucky than Indiana. Um, <laughs> you go, like, 30 minutes north, and everybody talks different and has a different kind of style. So it was pretty funny. I grew up, um, like, pretty average middle middle class kind of idyllic childhood. I was the middle, the middle of three, which made me kind of come out the gate, a golden retriever of sorts, just uh, always trying to please everybody around me, not liking conflicts of any kind, um, you know, just the, probably the more emotional of the three of us, and um, just uh, doing whatever I can to keep the pot from being stirred, I think, growing up. So did you have brothers, yeah. brothers, sisters, one of each? I had an older brother, I have an older brother, sorry, and I have a younger sister. Okay, and what's the age difference? So my brother is, we're almost exactly three years apart, my older brother. My younger sister is five years younger than me. Um, we're all super different. And um, it's funny now, like 30 years down the road or whatever, I'm like the only one who really plays outside much. But, um, but growing up, we lived in the country, so we spent tons of time outside. My parents wanted us to have kind of that childhood, so they bought this land and they built a house out in the woods. Um, cut down enough trees so that we could have a, a house kind of in the woods. I think from a little kid, we spent more time outside than in, making mud pies, riding bikes, digging in the dirt, playing in the woods. And, and my family also owned a cabin on the lake in Kentucky. 
And so it, for vacations, oftentimes growing up, like weekends and even summer vacations, we would just go spend our time at that, that cabin on the lake. I hated fishing. <laughs> they would make me fish all the time. That's it was how, just misery for me. That's how they cleared out the cabin? They sent the kids out out to the lake? No, they would make us all go in the boat. Like, they'd wake us up at the crack of dawn, put us in the boat, and make us, like, fish for hours. And I hated it because I thought fish were dirty and smelly, and I didn't <laughs> like putting the minnows on the hooks. Like, it grossed me out, and it made me sad for the minnows. And um, so my consolation was they would take me to the handy corner market, and they would give me a bag of candy. And I would sit in the boat and eat the candy while everyone else fished all day. Little glimpses of yeah. you being uh, being a golden retriever, as you, in your words. Um, you didn't like putting minnows on, on the hook. Yeah, it hurt the minnow. And yeah. I could never get it right. Like, I would stab him and he would die, you know? Like, you got to get it through the skin so that they're still alive. Yeah. And I was, and I would kill it. And I don't like to kill, like, anyone who knows me now knows I can't, I don't like animals to be killed yeah. or hurt. I didn't even as a small child, not even stinky little fish. Um, but yeah, but I mean, all that is to say, like we, we didn't really camp or adventure outside as a family much, but we played outside a lot because we had that cabin, we lived in the country. It was more like that kind of growing up in the outside. And I, for the most part, didn't like to be dirty or be outside. So it's really funny that I became who I became, but they gave us a good foundation for just loving nature and having an appreciation for things outside. All right, so tell us just a little bit uh, about your childhood. What was it like growing up in uh, in Evansville? I think it was pretty good. I mean, it was a blue-collar town, kind of industrial town. There were quite a few factory-style, like, workers and businesses there. Um, there wasn't any mountains, obviously, or anything. There was a river in town, and it was pretty dirty. So, you, you know, one time I fell and cut my foot and had to get a tetanus shot because the water's so dirty. Oh, um, yeah. Like, you don't really, I don't know, we didn't grow up, like, playing in the river too much. Um, my parents raised us Southern Baptist, and we had a good foundation for church. We'd go on Sundays, sometimes on Wednesdays, but we always went. My dad was an elder. We had a good public school system in my town. Um, I, I'm actually married to someone who grew up in the Christian school systems, and we talk about that a lot. But I really feel like the public schools uh, did me well, and I, and I enjoyed school. Um, but I did, elementary school was rough for me. I went young. I think I was five um, when I started kindergarten. Like, I had just turned five when school started. So I was probably the youngest in my class. And I just had a hard time with grades in elementary school. I was I just couldn't keep up. Like, intellectually, I was behind everyone else. But socially, I was a little jabber box. And I was always getting in trouble at parent-teacher conferences for talking too much, like passing notes to all my friends. And, um, and I was just a mama's girl, and I would cry every morning, sometimes to the point where I made myself sick because I didn't want to go to school. Um, but by the time I got to middle school, I had adjusted. Starting in middle school, I started doing um, art and music. I was singing and playing instruments. I was always kind of the more of the artist, one in my family, like more of the dreamer. Um, my family always told me I was a space cadet from when I was a little kid. I was always getting hurt, falling down, running into stuff. Just like in my head, a dreamer, always kind of dreaming about whatever's out there and instead of focusing what's right in front of me, which oftentimes would end up in me running into like a light post or something. Um, (laughs) But I think that has served me really well throughout life. And I think it's also like many things, it can be a hindrance, but it can also be kind of a gift. So you can figure out how to work with it, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So 
in my dreaming in middle school. It's such a funny thing. I was sitting in a Spanish class, and I remember it super vividly. For some reason, I was in sixth grade, I think, and I remember, like, thinking and knowing I was going to live in Colorado someday. It was oh, really? like this moment that has been, it stuck with me my whole life. And I can't really explain why, because we've never been there. We always had vacation, like, down south in Florida, Georgia, that kind of, that stuff. And um, I don't know. I was obsessed with Colorado starting in, like, sixth grade. And then uh, high school was good. I was in the marching band, which I know is probably nerdy, but I liked it. I can kind of continued with all that artsy stuff, but then I also was a uh, fast pitch pitcher for our softball team in high school, and did that I think three out of the four years. Okay. Um, that was my yeah, that was really my high school. Pretty standard, I would say. And nothing super crazy happened. Would you say that your draw to the outdoors, or the the one element that captivated you to the outdoors, was um, was dated right back to that? that time that you would spend at the family cabin or would you say that came somewhere else? Yeah. Great question. I think that that cabin growing up in the cabin in the country gave me a foundation for loving nature. And then with really the passion came in college though. So I ended up staying, I wanted to go away to college, but I ended up staying in my hometown and going to a college called the university of Southern Indiana, just down the road from my parents' house. And I decided to do it because they were going to pay for half my school if I did that. And then my um, scholarships were going to pay for the other half so I could get out of college without any debt. And I was excited for the possibility of graduating debt-free. So I decided to, to stay in town and go to college. And um, probably like my first or second year in college, I joined the intramural team. Okay. And there was like this outdoor intramural thing. I don't exactly remember what it was. But they had these adventure trips that you could go on. And I signed up for an overnight uh, canoe trip in Tennessee on the Buffalo River. And I'd never, outside of canoeing around the lake by our cabin, I'd never done anything like this. So we all, there was a group of us college kids, and we got in these canoes with all of our stuff. And it was like a, I guess it was like a creek river. I don't really know. There was rapids and all these things, which is ridiculous in a canoe with a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing. But we had like all of our overnight gear in the canoes and we would canoe all day and then set up camp on the beach at night and then canoe the next day and set up camp on the beach. I had never done anything like that. We had never camped as a family maybe once. So it was a whole new, and I was like, this is the best thing ever. I love the like excitement of the rapids and just like my friends getting dumped over and trapped. And like, it was just so new and exciting and cool. I think that trip sparked all of it for me. Above and beyond being a new experience, did that tie into anything that uh, allowed you to learn something about yourself? What was, I guess, was was the draw the nature portion or was the draw the internal change? Or was it a little bit of both? Such good questions. You know, I think it was the adrenaline of the adventure. I, I, have, I think I learned on that trip that I needed um, – I'm not sure what the word is like uh um like golf doesn't work for me because there's nothing exciting about it like i needed like the adrenaline of my friend flipping her boat over and getting caught and us having to rescue her was what gripped me mm. and i think i've learned that i have to have that like just at the edge of something could go really wrong but you survive it kind of thing to just feel super alive and mm. i loved it and i don't think i had had that before that moment 
so like the guy who led that trip, um, and this is where it really uh, catapulted me into the world of adventure. The man who was leading the trip in the rock climbing gym in Evansville. And after our trip, I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this thing? And so I started climbing at the gym and I became completely obsessed with this sport, rock climbing. Um, I just loved that you could fall and get hurt, but maybe not. And it was all about kind of like, I think what I really, really loved was that when you were on the wall, it was just that moment. So like, you couldn't think about anything else or you would fall. So you had to be so hyper-focused on where your hands were and your feet were so that you just didn't fall and get hurt. Um, and I think it allowed me to drown out all the other voices in the world, like all the other sounds and all the other troubles and all the other anxieties would just kind of go away when I was on the wall. Um, and so then that, of course, led to climbing outside on rocks, which even up the ante more, and you're leading and doing all these crazy things, and I just became... It just became the thing that I loved the most. Did you have some buddies that were doing that with you, or how, how'd that all work yeah. out? Yep, so I was the odd, the odd man out in Evansville as far as girls go. I was the only girl I knew who did these things, and so I, I climbed with a bunch of dudes. And um, I would actually, the guy that owned the gym, we would, there was a group of us, and he was one of them, and we would just climb. We would go on the weekends. We would drive like to Shawnee National uh, park, which was a couple hours out of Evansville, and then sometimes down to the road or gorge. And we would just climb all weekend, um, and it was just me and a bunch of guys. And I don't think my parents loved that, but uh, I loved it. And I was, I'd come rolling in on Sunday for post-church brunch, having not made it to church, and I would smell so bad. I remember so many, I would like to think from climbing and camping all weekend, they would tell me I had to take a shower before I get to the table. <laughs> and, uh, I always had bloody arms and legs, and they were just like, what, who are you? You'd completely evolved into a kind of a an earth-roaming uh, adventurous type from uh, <laughs> more or less kind of a, a dainty, girly girl, uh, do what you're yep. told, keep the peace, and uh, don't kill minnows um, childhood. Yep. Right? Okay. Yep. What hap- happened after you graduated from Evansville? I was ready to go west. That love for Colorado, that draw, that pull um, out west, for whatever reason it was, never left me. And I think it just got stronger and stronger. Um, But I'd still never been there. And everything in me just wanted to go west. Um, I had a degree in psychology and a degree in Spanish. And um, I spent some time in Mexico while I was in college. And so I was really hoping to kind of work with the Latino community out in Colorado. Got a job interview. Went to Colorado for my first time ever in my life for the job interview. And um, I'm telling you, the minute I stepped foot there, I just knew. I was like, this is home. These are my people. There was women. I met women who were backpacking guys. I was like, oh, my gosh, you exist. There are other people like me. And I just couldn't wait to be part of a community of other women that were out, that loved outdoors like I did and that I could adventure with. And I was just stoked on it. Um, but it didn't work out. And I ended up having to go back to Indiana pretty devastated, pretty heartbroken, um, and uh, took a job, a desk job, my only desk job of my entire life thus far, and it lasted approximately six months, I think. I am not uh, a desk job person. (laughs) So that didn't work out very well, and I, uh, long story short, I ended up working for an organization called Young Life, doing um, some ministry at the high school that I had graduated from. So, like, really, for a girl who wanted to get out of Dodge, I ended up staying as close to home as possible for, like, the next four years. Um, 
And during that time, I just play a backpack. I started to explore the adventure world as much as I could in my area. And then at one point, took all my Evansville high school kids out to Colorado for a week-long backpacking trip um, with a group called Armar, and uh, that was pretty incredible. And then that just solidified, like, I got to get out west. So, um, yeah, so I came back, and I kept doing what I was doing and um, ended up meeting my my now husband, who was going to move to Colorado. And uh, he moved out there, and just a few weeks after he did, Young Life called me and asked me, if I'd be willing to move to Colorado to start a program for the Latino community, um, which was initially what I had my heart set on anyway. So it really felt full circle for me that God was giving me the chance to live where I wanted to live and also do what I wanted to do, which was work with that, that Latino community. Um, it was pretty great. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. Adventure Deficit's mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire you through these stories and the life lessons they hold. We can't wait to see you get out there in pursuit of your own adventures and combat the deficit. We need your help in achieving this, and there's several ways you can get involved. First, if you're listening to this, you probably already know we're on iTunes under Adventure Deficit. But be sure to click subscribe. This way, our new episodes will automatically appear in your download queue and we'll know how many of you we're reaching. We'd love to see your feedback on there too, so feel free to post a note and let us know how we're doing. Our main website, www.adventuredeficit.com, which serves as a base camp for all of our content, is where we'll post notes from each episode, including timestamps from the highlights and direct links to any gear or information that you might want to revisit. There are gear reviews and short stories from other exciting adventures not featured on the podcast. Under support, you can either buy stuff or donate to the show. A special thanks to those of you who have already bought t-shirts or donated to us directly. This revenue enables us to continue producing content, so think about helping us in that way too, if you can. Finally, you can connect with us on social media. Our Facebook page is at the Adventure Deficit. Give us a follow, or we're on Instagram too, under Adventure Deficit. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. Cheers. Let's get ready to take our medicine. Gina's agreed to tell uh, us an adventure story about backpacking a four-pass loop um, in the mountains of Colorado, so in the Rockies, and uh, all of the juicy details that came with that. Gina, break it down for us. What, uh, what was the, the name of this adventure, if, if you will? Yes, so this was definitely an adventure of a lifetime. Ten years later, I still think back on it super fondly. Um, it was called the, it is called the Aspen Snowmass Four Pass Loop. Um, it is about 28 miles round trip to the Elk Mountains uh, down in the Aspen area of Colorado. It goes through the Maroon Bells and the Snowmass Wilderness. Uh, pretty amazing topography. There's Four to, I think four or five fourteeners around you the whole time, and and, and uh, a fourteener is a mountain that's over fourteen thousand feet, so it's above tree line, so we call it, meaning there's not enough air for trees to grow. So they're really large, jagged, beautiful pieces of life, um, and they're just kind of around the whole time you're doing this trip. So it's a pretty, uh, I would say, strenuous backpacking trip. Um, it's about 
just a little over 8,000 feet of elevation gain from start to finish. And you have, you know, 50 whatever pounds on your back. Um, and they're, they're pretty steep. They're pretty steep passes. So we, so my friend Adrian and I, who I met through Young Life, um, have been guiding for RMR, that outdoor, uh, you know, thing that I referenced earlier. So she had experience with the wilderness. I knew nothing about reading maps or anything like this. Um, and so she, and she had never done this by herself either. We had both always ever been in a group of people. Um, so this was our first time ever going out in the woods by ourselves, two women. And I think, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty, she, I was at her mercy because I, I didn't, if we got lost, I was screwed. Um, so we stayed close together and I trusted that she knew what she was doing. Um, so yeah, so the first, I'll just kind of break down the trip for you guys. It was, um, the first day we drove down to Aspen, it was about four, four and a half hours from Denver. So we drove the, the trip and then we ended up hiking in just a few miles and setting up camp before the first pass. So this, this loop had four mountain passes that you had to go over and all those passes were over 12,500 feet. So we had to kind of be strategic about when we were doing those, those passes in Colorado and probably some, I would imagine most Rocky Mountain areas, there are thunderstorms that come in in the afternoon. They're pretty specific between 11 and 5. They can happen and they can be really dangerous with hail and lightning. And uh, you just do not want to be up up on one of those passes when one of those storms come in. So you kind of have to know like when to set out for the day and when you're going to be getting up on top. So when you say you're yeah. above tree line and you've got afternoon thunderstorms that take place anywhere between 11 o'clock and 5, I mean, yeah. the idea is if you've got a lightning, you've got presence of lightning and nasty, uh, nasty precipitation, high winds, anything that accompanies a nasty thunderstorm, it's one thing to wait that out in your neighborhood under a roof in a walled fortress that is your house. But when you're above the tree right. line, you've got nothing. Yeah, you're super exposed and you just have your backpack on your back. Um, and it's, yeah, it can be really scary. Me and Adrian did not know what the heck we were doing. Like we thought we did, but we really just didn't. So uh, that particular part of the country has, um, has a pretty good amount of bears and probably mountain lions too, but we knew bears were an issue down there. Um, so we had planned to do something called bear bagging, which meant that we needed to set up our campsite for the night, like where we were going to sleep, and then we would hike a half a mile, or at least a half a mile down the trail to have our kitchen to set up the cook so that it was no, nowhere near where we were sleeping. And then we had to put all of our food um, into, like, a waterproof bags and get them up in the trees. And, like, in the past, we'd always done this with groups, and the men always did it. So here we were, like, thinking this isn't going to be fine, and it, was, and it turned out to be ridiculous. Um, so we tied all of our bags up, and it was, like, five days' worth of food. So they were super heavy. And we attached this P-cord, which is just a strong piece of, like, um, cord that won't snap to a rock and a carabiner. And we were just, like, we were trying to chuck it up over these tree branches. Um, and I think after, like, 30 minutes, we had broken, like, three or four tree branches. We got it tangled up so many times. We were, like, cutting the rope and re-dying it. It was just, it was horrible. So we finally, it was starting to get dark, and we just had our headlamps, and that was it. And um, we finally got it up and over a branch that we thought, we were like, okay, this branch is going to work. And it was down low enough that one of us could grab the end. So my, my friend Adrian 
but it was too heavy. Like, we couldn't pull it. The bags were too heavy for us two girls to get the bags up in the air. So we were, like, yanking on this cord. We couldn't get the bags up off the ground. So I made up this plan. I wrapped the pea cord around my waist and connected the carabiner to the other side. And I was like, well, here's what we're going to do, Adrienne. You're going to take the bags over your head, and on the count of three, you're going to throw them as high as you can up in the air, and I'm going to run as fast as I can into the woods. And then we're going to get this thing up off the ground. So I'm like, okay, ready? What? <laughs> oh, and by the way, I'm wearing Chacos. I had taken off my hiking boots, and I was wearing Chacos, because when you backpack, it's like heaven on earth to put on your Chacos. But it had been raining, so the ground was wet. So I'm like, ready, age, one, two. She throws it. I take off running, and um, just true to Gina form, I crash into this tree log on the ground. I, I lose both my shoes, and I get the rope so tight around my waist, I couldn't get it off. And I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to cut my skin open. But we got the bags in the air. And um, then she, we got them off the ground. So she came over and we just leveraged it. We finally got it up. It was just the dumbest thing in the world. And suffice it to say, we um, we gotten better at it as the week progressed. But that was ridiculous. And then on the way back from our kitchen, we got lost and could not find our tent. I just remember, like, wandering around in these bushes with our headlamps on for, like, an hour in the pitch black trying to find our campsite that first night. Um, laughing, but mostly just kind of scared. <laughs> it's one thing, again, when you're out there, it's one thing to uh, to have your tent uh, being misplaced. It's another thing to have your tent being misplaced when it's dark and you don't have any other form of, of shelter. That's That's your home. So you didn't know where your home was. We found it, though. We survived. We made it, obviously. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so that was a good first night on the trail. Um, then uh, the next morning was a big day. We had to go over two passes that day because of the thunderstorms. We needed to get over two passes before noon. So, um, and then Adrienne never told me because I asked her not to. I'm not a morning person. I didn't want to know what time we were waking up. I just know that it was pitch black and that we hiked in the pitch black for several hours. So I'm sure it was very, very early. Um, but that actually worked out great. I feel like when it's pitch black and you're hiking, you cover a lot more ground because you, you, you're, like, still sleeping, sort of, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So that day was a big day. We went over um, West Maroon Pass. And then, and I, honestly, I don't remember too much about it, I think, because if we, it was dark and we started hiking so early. I think you just kind of, we just did it. Um, but the next pass was called Frigid Air Pass. And, um... It was, we were like hiking through this field and there was wildflowers. It was so beautiful. You guys, if you ever get the chance to do this, to do this loop, it's just magnificent. But um, we're like hiking through this wildflower field and we see what we think is a path up and over to the left. And I'm like, oh, that's not too bad. We can do that. Like, that's doable. And then uh, to the right, though, there is what appears to be a straight like wall of mountains. And turns out that that was our path, not the one that looked doable. And you guys, we we were like on our hands and knees crawling up this path with fifty pound packs on our back. Um, it was and it was like scree, so if that's what the term is for it, scree is kind of like a loose gravel. So when you're up high like that, there's no vegetation. There's very little vegetation, so the ground is kind of rocky, and there's these little pebbles everywhere, and it can be very loose and hard to kind of like walk on. Sure, but like scrambling on your hands and knees i just i just think we remember um just being like what the hell age like what are we doing this isn't like who does this <laughs> yeah. um 
you know, like what a, what's a dream? But then you get to the top of that path, you survive it, and the views are just, you know, breathtaking. Right. Um, worth, worth, you know, worth it, obviously. We had our beanies on and our fleeces with our raincoats over, and it was like August, but it was cold and windy up there. Okay. Uh, surprising how much the, like, atmosphere changes, you know, from like 9,000 feet to 12,000 feet. It's, it's, it can be pretty significant. Um, so that you need to carry a lot of different layers and rain gear and whatnot. Um, yeah, so we hiked in hiking boots with gators to kind of protect ourselves from water and, like, stream crossings. There were a lot of stream crossings. There were some really, there were some, like, ones where the log was maybe, I don't know, I'd see five inches across or maybe six inches across over a big gnarly stream and just, like, teetering with this backpack. I mean, it's absurd, kind of, but so, like, there I am, you know? This is one of those deals where it's like, I can fall and get really hurt, but I love it! Yeah. Because I can fall and get really hurt, you know? Yeah. Um... Yeah, and then some of the stream crossings, we would have to take our shoes off and, and put our chacos back on because um, it gets a little dangerous with the slippery rocks and the water moving super fast. And so we would actually like take our boots and the gators off, put on our chacos, cross the rivers, and then put our boots back on. And uh, I feel like that day, the Frigidaire day, there was a couple of pretty gnarly stream crossings. When you say gnarly stream crossings, are you just swift water deep or... Yeah, I mean, I think there was different ones. Like, there was one There was one I remember that was, like, a big, fast river with a tiny log that you had to go across it, and the log was wet because the water was, like, rushing. It was, like, rapids, and it was, like, getting the log wet, and it was a small log. So you're walking, you know, precariously on a wet log across the rapids, and you have all this weight on your back. And I mean, you know, just a little bit of the wrong weight on the wrong foot, you could fall in, and that would be not good. Um, yeah, and then the next morning again, and uh, we... We got up super early again before the sun, and I distinctly remember this day. I was not super happy. I think my body was really tired from three passes. Or, well, at that point, it was two passes, but the day before was a pretty pretty physically demanding day, and I think my body really hurt. Plus, when you're backpacking, you eat crap food. You know, you eat whatever. You can dehydrate and rehydrate, and your body, your back, like, everything is just like, and um, I remember Adrian waking me up that morning, and I was just mad. I didn't want to put on my pack. I didn't want to hike. Um, but she, she's such a joyous person, like being with her, I feel like you can't really stay mad for very long. And she's just, you know, like, let's do this. And so we, we started hiking in the dark again. Um, at some point we came across like this, uh, alpine, like a spruce meadow with these amazing, magnificent waterfalls. And I think it was still early enough. The fog was in the mountains. It was misty still. And I, there's something super magical about that. I don't, I just think it's a magical feeling. Um, yeah. And then we hiked up to, like, an Aspen field. And at that point, I remember my body starting to say, okay, we're awake, we're awake. I don't know how long we spent hiking by then, but I finally started to feel like I could hike. And then we came up Trail Rider Pass. And I hated this path. It was horrible. I, I don't, it was worse than for you there, straight up. Like, I just, I think it was really long. It was like hiking a 14er kind of with a backpack on. For whatever reason, it seemed like a really long trail, really steep and really long. And I said the F word every single step <laughs> up that path. Um, my, my friend Adrian kept telling me to do the rest step, which is when you're backpacking or hiking, you like step and then you lock your knee for a minute while you pull up the next leg. And it's called the rest step because it allows you to like hike longer without exhausting your body. And I would rest step and say the F word, rest step, F word, rest step, F word. Like for probably whatever hour it took, two hours it took to get up there. Oh, it was so, I was, and it was raining and cold. It was not fun. 
top of Trail Rider Pass and Snowmass Mountain, which is a 14er, it was just like there. It was just on the other side of this pass, and it, and there was a lake at the base of the 14er, like Snowmass Lake. And the minerals from the mountain make the lake aqua blue. It's like this. It looks like a Caribbean, you know, it's like this green, blue, just beautiful lake, and the mountain is white. Like, it has whatever mineral on it makes it white, so the contrast, and up until then, we had been hiking in, like, red, like, clay-y ground with, like, spruce green everywhere, and so this, like, white, blue, amazing vision on the other side of this pass was just too much. So we decided to come down off that pass and spend a whole day there resting. So we actually camped at the base of Snowmass for two nights and um, decided to give our bodies a little break and just rest and enjoy this amazing scenery. We maybe saw 10 people total the whole time we were on that trail. Um, yeah. It's a pretty strenuous trail. So I, in fact, and this was 10 years ago, I think now probably Colorado's got a lot more people and it's probably much busier. But back then, there, I don't know how many people actually did the loop. Um, and so we probably maybe saw 10. And one was a group from Tennessee, and they were trying to get us to drink with them one night. We're like, are you kidding me? Like, do you know what you have to do tomorrow? So, and we would find them just in a pile, like miserable, hungover, you know, because you're you, like drinking at that elevation is not, your body does not enjoy that. Yeah, so we came down to Snowmass, Snowmass Lake, and obviously people had been camping there because I think you can just get to Snowmass Lake and out. Like that can be a day trip in and out from the Maroon Bells side. Yeah. So that area was much more populated. Um, <clears throat> people just come in to fish for the day or whatever. So we were setting up our camp, and Adrian has her chacos on again. And she she stepped in a pile of poo with her bare foot uh, tacos. But then we like quickly realized it was human. Uh, and you've already not showered for like four days, right? So just adding to the muck. But she literally like gagged until she almost puked. I was laughing so hard. That's um, so foul. <laughs> I almost feel like after four days in the woods, it's just it doesn't even like you smell so bad, right? Like whatever. But that's gross, man. Hide your like dig a hole, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I don't know. She probably went in the lake and washed it off. It was pretty like that's something she still talks about today. I think it was pretty traumatic for her. I I mostly thought it was really funny. Yeah. This nice yeah. nice little reminder to make sure you practice leave no trace, and that means dig, dig a hole. And that's the other thing. Like we didn't have fires, you know, on this trail. I think a lot of people when they think about like backpacking, it can't be you have a fire at night. Lovely, you sit around it. Like you can't you can't do fires on the on this trail. Um, we packed in everything. We packed out everything, and we definitely were you know leaving doing the leave no trace deal. And uh, you're so tired anyway. You don't want to sit around a fire. But I would say yeah, for sure. Like leave. Leave, I don't know, dig a hole, I, whatever. If you have animals, like, do some, <laughs> just be nice to all the other people who are out there trying to enjoy nature. What else did you guys do in, in the two-day break that you took camping in uh, at the base of Snowmass? We saved our best meal for that night. We made pizza bagels, which if you've ever backpacked, that's like the ish. You have bagels that you toast, and then you put, like, uh, you, you've carried bags of cheese and marinara sauce for days. And uh, you just melt it all onto your bagel with pepperoni, and it's just glorious heaven. And we looked forward to it the whole week, and we saved it for our best night. The big pan. Yes, we had pizza bagels, good stuff. Um, And then we just journaled, and we read, and we sat. There was a waterfall right by our campsite, so we sat by the waterfall and the lake. And I think when you're in nature like that and you're so disconnected, it's so easy to connect with um, your spirit, with the spirit, with with. I don't know the things in life that are really, really important, and it's. I think it's hard to do that day to day. Like day to day life in the city, 
it's hard to connect, and sometimes it just takes that disconnection to really connect. So I would say that that's probably what we did that day. We just connected with ourselves and with nature. And you got kind of everything rested and recouped, and yeah. you were ready to head back up. Uh, you had two more passes left at this point, right? No, we had done two in one day, so we only had one left. Okay, um, so you got the fourth. skin pass. And okay. at that point, you're like, I got this, no big deal. Because the day before, it sucked so bad, or the pass before, it sucked so bad. Um, I don't even remember hiking that path because I think at that point, I was just used to the, you know, the nature of that particular trip. Yeah. Physically, my, my pants were falling off. Like, all my, uh, you know, my pants were, I didn't have a belt. It was a dumb rookie mistake. I didn't wear a belt, and my pants were, like, hanging around my hips. So I was flashing everybody that last day or so on the trail. Um <laughs> But we got up to Buckskin Pass, and you get up on there, and it is like Lord of the Rings. I mean, I feel like, if you've seen that movie or whatever, like, you feel like you're standing in Lord of the Rings. There's, like, Pyramid Peak, which is a 14er, is just to your right, and to the left is the north face of the Maroon Bells, which are just this iconic mountain in Colorado. Um, and we just sat up there, I think for a long time. I think we had lunch up there, we sat up there, we took pictures up there, we got our crazy creeks out. Because um, it was like the pinnacle, you know, we'd made it and we just really wanted the bath and the fact that we made it because we were hiking out that day. So we knew like that was our last. We knew once we got down, it was to the car and home. And I think it's just hard to leave when you're yeah. in a place, you know, like that. You don't want to go back to life. So. Yeah. You don't want to leave that solitude <laughs> behind because there's so much learning yeah. that takes place. I, I imagine you guys learned quite a bit in those those two days that you had to just reflect. Yeah, it's funny. Age had written me some notes. Um and my, I, I had my journal with me, and I, 10 years later, occasionally, I still find them tucked in, like, places. She's, mm. like, written little notes on pieces of paper and stuck them in there. And I'll still, every once in a while, one will fall out. And there's nothing like it. Like, being out in the woods with somebody that, that you really enjoy being with and, and doing an adventure like that together super bonding thing yeah good for you guys for being intentional about it too it sounds like you had some some notepads with you and you had planned on taking some time to yourself to spend uh spend in reflection yeah that's good yeah i mean you could just power through it and people do people trail run it which is i'm sorry but that's not um or it's good (laughs) for you if you trail run it like whoa but uh and we saw a few people doing that but i do feel like we would have missed out on just the depth of like connection, like I was saying, uh, by taking it, by taking that rest day mm. and just saying like being grateful that we could get there and our bodies got us there and we could enjoy a place that most of the world will never see. Yeah. Okay. So you spent, spent, uh, the last few moments on buckskin, <clears throat> grabbed lunch and snapped some photos. Anything else happened on the way back down or did you, you just pretty much Not just really. chunk it out from there? Family and I was day hiking, I think up to the lake and their dog was super interested in us because we smelled so bad and they were like did you guys just do the loop uh, yeah we did. i mean we looked pretty glorious i'm sure yeah. um and they they were just like super you know i think they were like two girls just in that loop by themselves and i think there was a moment of pride there like yeah we did just do that by ourselves yeah what a um, sense of accomplishment you know, that's cool it felt really good yeah i'm not like yeah, I'm not super, I don't like talk about that stuff a lot with people, but I think in that moment when they told us how cool it was that we did it, it was the first time I realized how cool it was that we did it. Yeah. And, you know, not a lot of people do it. That's great. You know, how long right? has it been? Yeah. 10 years? 10 years this summer. Yeah. Almost t- like exactly 10 years this month. So there's got to be a few things that stood out. Um, if you had to narrow it down, Gina, to one 
one central lesson. Um, give us a sentence or two describing what it is that you took from that that has stood stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we did that trip um, for the pure adventure of it. Um, we, we wanted to see if two girls could do something like that by themselves in the woods for that long without assist from men or guides or anyone else. I, and I think that was it. Like, we wanted to see if we could do it and come out on the other side, wiser, stronger, um, more alive. So, And I think we accomplished that. Like, the goal was that, and we came out and we felt wiser, stronger, more capable. Um, and, I, and I think just knowing that, I think growing up, Maybe it's different now, but when I was a kid, girls didn't do those sorts of things. And so the physicality of it, the emotional strength that it takes to do something like that, um, you know, just like coming out on the other side and like, we did it and I can do it again. And I, you know, want to do it again. So I think it's the power of the woman. And that sounds so feminist to me, but like that we harness that, but we just need to choose to do it. Like you need to make the choice that you want to try something, whether it's hiking or I don't, it doesn't need to be anything, even outdoor, like whatever it is for you that's scary or hard. um, I think just making that choice that you want to go for it and just see what happens on the other side, is probably going to be really good and worth it. Hmm. Yeah. So specifically speaking to the female audience, there was, there was a lot of empowerment there for you coming from a more traditional background of, it was probably more, um, gender divided in uh in your upbringing right gender roles for were, were sure. clearly drawn for sure. and, yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah and all my camping up until that moment had been with guys girls didn't you know it was just known that you needed guys to protect you or to get their bags in the trees or you know and being forced into a situation where you don't have the option to rely on anyone else and you have to do it yourself you realize that you can awesome yeah, I gotta believe that's uh, a source of of power by which you can draw from, right? A nice little reminder when you run into uh, some of the junk that life inevitably throws you, um, that y- you can kind of tie into that that one segment of life and say, you know what, I've had I've had to overcome hardships, and I've had to celebrate. Um, celebrate my femininity and be exclusive of the male counterpart and still get it done. And that experience pretty much proved to you, um, that that was, that's doable. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. When you put yourself in it willingly and yeah, I think that's very well said Drew. Yeah. Um, The only other thing I would say is that when life gets complicated or hard or you find yourself for me anyway, I find myself just in my head and unable to connect with what matters, I just keep going back to the fact that, like, that connection comes from, at least for me, it comes from disconnecting from the, the concrete and getting yourself to a place where um, the breeze, the rain, the lake, the mountains, whatever it is for you, uh, just allows you to connect again with your spirit, with the spirit, with, you know, just the things that allow you to breathe. Mm. And just on the, the note, of of female empowerment i think we're living in a day and age that's fast forward um as far as the realization of what women are capable of um i don't know if you guys did you see 
on the cover of uh, of Outside magazine. I think it was either May or June, but um, it was filled with inspiring women who have done some pretty inspiring things. Yes. And the title of that, I remember, is called, it was The New Icons, and it was basically saying that the future of adventure is, is female. Um, ah, I love it. That's so great. I love that. That's, yeah. That's awesome. And I think... I mean, being somebody who kind of kind of grew up always interested in in outdoors and outdoor sports and pursuing you know outdoor adventures, I think I've seen that shift firsthand. And just drawing from kind of my own um, my own quiver of experiences, I can tell you, it's easy uh, to see what a woman is capable of. Go do a five k. Go do a ten k. Go do a. I just did a thirty mile mountain bike race up in uh, Marquette. Um, and I can tell you there were, uh, there were no rules as far as gender on that trail. When I was getting passed, it did not matter if that, <laughs> if that bike had a, had a chick with a ponytail on it and she was, uh, she was gunning for me. Um, the trail didn't seem to mind one way or another, whether or not she was a she or a he, uh, and it's been that way, yeah. you know, it's okay. been that way in so many different circumstances where I go put myself in these situations and I watch women just thrive. Um, there are a couple of bouldering problems that I've been, that I've been working on, you know, when I was doing an off campus semester in New Mexico and, uh, the one who not only showed me how to do it, but did it with more grace and more fluidity than I could have really given her credit for was, yeah, it was my female friend. And, uh, just witnessing what women are, are capable of is one way to kind of squash gender uh, divisions. And I think there's, I just think there's something to be learned um, in the outdoors. The outdoors is a pretty neutral, um, is a pretty neutral decider of things. It doesn't really sway one way or, or the other. And um, what better way to go figure out what you're capable of than tackle four 14,000 foot peaks? What are some words of advice that you have for, for our females that are listening that might want to check something out um, that they haven't done before? I would say find someone who knows a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I went with Ace. She was a good friend, but she also knew how to read topography maps and to not get lost in the wilderness. So, you know, be smart about it. Um, if you want to climb, find somebody who's a climber. Get them to teach you and take you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, whatever it is, don't be afraid of it. But I would say educate yourself. Find, find somebody that you can hang with while you do it. Um, and then I would just, I would say it would be okay to be afraid. Like, it's okay to be afraid and to just walk into whatever it is afraid. But also maybe don't find out too much about what could go wrong, you know. If I had maybe known that we were walking into complete that I, I maybe have been too afraid or maybe didn't want to do it because it would have been too hard. But once you're in it, you don't have a choice. You either go forward or go backwards. Mm. So I just wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, overthink it. I would find something that maybe makes your heart thump just a little bit and start digging into it and, and do it. Just do it. Life's short and fun and it should be really fun. It should be an adventure. I mean, there are some inherent differences between men and women and uh, just as far as uh, hygiene on the trail, you have any advice for women, oh women on the trail? Uh, what is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? Girls fart, girls poop, girls get periods. It's not, uh, it's not yeah. any different than regular life. But uh, what does it mean for a woman to be on the trail and 
and be prepared for that type of thing. Yeah, you're going to go there. Okay, so, I mean, I think we think just like boys. I mean, I remember uh, Adrian and I, like, gagging, laughing in our tents because when you eat backpacking food, your fart smells so they are, like, epically worse than any other fart. And you're trapped in a tent together. So, like, that just is. There's not much you can do about it. Like, you're eating dehydrated crap that just hurts your stomach. Um, but, I mean, as far as, like, the female piece of it, I would just say, you know, if you have, I mean, if you have your period, it's not ideal because, you know, animals and things. And if you're practicing leave no trace, I actually think one of us may have had that while we were on the trail. You just have to bring stuff, bags and ziplocs and you know, toilet paper, um, but you also have to be willing to carry it in your backpack. And, uh, you know, you don't want to leave that stuff around. So you do have to plan. I mean, I have actually, I had altered trips around that before just because it is kind of a pain to deal with on the trail. Um, but it's doable. So, and they make stuff now. Back then they didn't have it, but they have this thing called the Diva Cup. And they have some other, I think there's definitely products on the market now that make it easier you wouldn't have to necessarily carry trash. Um, other than that, just deodorant, bug spray, and, you know, sunscreen. I, I don't think, I'm not sure it's that much different. Well, peeing is a little different, right? Because guys can stand up and pee, which is so nice for you. Um, I, oh, we would collect these giant leaves. So in Colorado, there's these big leaves. Um, because it's a desert, some of the leaves get really big to try to soak up as much water as they can. If we saw them, we would stuff them in our packs. And because um, they only were, at, like, like, in the valley, so we would fill our packs with these giant leaves because we knew we could use them to wipe. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, because they were really good for wiping and for blowing your nose. They were soft and they were really big. Um, and so we would just hoard them in our backpacks. And then and then you could leave them in the ground. You could dig your hole, go to the bathroom, wipe, and leave the leaves there without, like, leaving, you know, something that doesn't belong. Nice. Because when, when you're a girl, if you drip dry every day three or four times a day, you know, it's not the best situation. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, just as far as um, being with female-only groups um, on the trail, do you feel at in any way like you need to have um, some sort of protection? Do you feel like you need to have uh, pepper spray, yeah. mace, uh, yeah. a firearm, yeah. anything of those, anything down that that line? Yep. So I think that that's a, that's a great question. I, mean, I think anybody in the woods shoot should not just girls. Uh, but girls, maybe more so. Um, I think for that trip, I didn't, I carried, <laughs> I think I carried an ice axe in my pack. Um, my husband's a, an ice climber. I think we had an ice pickaxe that I attached to my backpack. Um, but that, and that is obviously a close range instrument, so you hope you don't have to use it. But I mean, there's bears, there's mountain lions, and there's people. Um, all things to be super aware of. And sometimes the people can be more scary than the wildlife, but... I do feel like every time I've ever gone in the woods by myself, whether it's for a hike or an overnight, I either have a, you know, a form of spray or a weapon, a knife or a, you know, an ice. <laughs> it sounds really graphic, but, um, you know, if a mountain lion comes charging at me, I, I, I want to have something to defend myself. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think it's smart. Yeah, you don't want to just, like, be naive about it and think that it's all going to be fine. It probably will be, but... Having a whistle, I also think having a whistle is really important. We carried really loud whistles on our backpacks in case we were ever get separated or in case there was anything that would happen. We could always whistle to each other and find each other. If you can't move, you can usually whistle still. So Smart. Um, yeah, I think having a really good whistle, 
close to your shoulder on your backpack so you can reach it if you're injured or whatever is a really smart piece of equipment. Um, and then, like, a compass, obviously, and we, we all, we carried, um, you know, just things that would get really cold. It can get really cold in the Rockies, so, like, hypothermic stuff. You know, we had waterproof matches and just some things that you, you want to have on your body in case of worst case. Cool. Well, Gina, thanks so much for for spending some time with us, for sharing your awesome story about uh, the Four four Mountain Pass. And uh, we are really, really excited to uh, to just kind of dwell in some of the good uh, nature of, of the content that you've provided. So uh, a big thanks from the Adventure Deficit community. Tell us a little bit about what you got going on um, now after uh, after the fact and um, how, how we might find you as far as... Uh, as far as social media or uh, by way of website. Yeah, well, thank you, Drew. It's been an honor that you wanted to hear my story, so thanks. Um, we are, my family has embarked on a new adventure. We left Colorado back in November, and we are now in the Blue Ridge Mountains in a little mountain town south of Asheville, small little town of 8,000 people. Um, we're trying mountain life on the East Coast, and see, we'll see how that turns out. I haven't been here too long yet. Um, so that's what we're up to for you. I have a blog going at beautyintheblueridge.com. Beauty in the Blue Ridge is my, uh, I have an Instagram account there. Um, that's just my little snippet of trying to find the beauty here in these mountains because I've always just loved the West and those Rocky Mountains so much. I'm, I'm looking for the beauty here too. Um, and then I also own a wedding and event planning company and um, that's so opposite of all this other stuff. But I, uh, I have a wedding company called Organically U Events. And I am a serial entrepreneur, so I'm also in the midst of starting a new business called Share the Ohm. It is not up and running yet, but it is going to be kind of a, a yoga, meditation, accessories um, company that also gives back proceeds to the countries that we are fair trade sourcing our products from. So that's a little passion project in the work yet to be done. No doubt about it. Women are strong. Uh, we're talking to a strong woman here. <laughs> Gina, um, uh, give us give Appreciate us that. the uh, the web address for organically you one more time. It's organicallyyouevents.com. Okay, so organically you y o u events.com, all one word. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's the girly girl of me coming out in the artist, still playing with that piece of what I love in life. Fantastic. Hey, thanks again. Appreciate you. Uh, we wish you. you the very best and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Perfect. Take care.